Well, hello and welcome to What's Brewing CISFA. What's Brewing CISFA is a podcast produced for the California Community Colleges Student Financial Aid Administrators Association. I'm your host, Dennis Schrader. I serve as the 2021-2022 CISFA past president. Now, although my co-host Dana isn't able to join us today, you can expect to hear more from her in future episodes. But until then, it's just me and you. So let's get this show started. And welcome to another episode of What's Brewing, Cisfa. Let's start the show off with our first cups. Now, again, I've had my coffee already earlier this morning, some kind of breakfast blend. Because we're taping this show a little later in the day, so it's just a, some kind of Diet Coke thing or whatever from lunch that's left over. Get your free refills before you leave, everybody. Now, although we don't have Dana today, we'll go ahead and plow through some news. Might be a shorter than normal show because... As we hit this time of year, it actually slowed down a little bit for news. Everyone's into their fall semester. The Department of Ed, until the next year's FAFSA comes out, has already done all their work. So there's really nothing new, new on that front. Same thing with the uh, California Student Aid Commission. I mean, there's deadlines and all of that and things going on, but not a whole lot of news, news out there. Let's go through what we do have. First and foremost, from CASFA, our California Association of Student Financial Aid Administrators. If you're interested, they are inviting nominations for their 2021 awards. So similar to CISFA, they like to give awards to CASFA members who've really made an impact with the association and our field. So they have a lifetime membership award, a distinguished service award, creative leadership, segmental leadership, keeping in mind that in financial aid, CISFA is one segment. We are the community colleges, the public ones at that. But there's other segments to higher education in California. There's obviously the four-year publics like UCs, Cal State Universities, and such. There's private nonprofits like University of Southern California, Pepperdine University, Stanford. There are the for-profit or potentially nonprofit sometimes um, private institutions. These would be your career colleges, technical schools, and such like that. And so those are all broken out. And oftentimes also graduate and professional is broken out too. Other awards, they have a meritorious service award and a rookie of the year award. So the nomination form is available. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. I do believe you have to already be a CASFA member to vote. But if not, you can always go to the CASFA website for more information. That's really about all I have on the CASFA front. 
from NASFA, we have a few news items here. In particular, they're urging the Department of Ed to consider extending the verification relief that we are seeing for this current school year before the 2022-23 cycle opens up. Keeping in mind, again, the FAFSA for 2022-23 comes out October 1st. So NASFA just last Tuesday joined the National College Attainment Network, or also known as NCAN, in a letter addressed to Education Secretary Miguel Cardona, lamenting the fact that verification waivers recently granted by the department won't be extended for the 22-23 award year. Now, as it says here, acknowledging that the department alluded to possible waivers still being considered for the upcoming year, the letter notes the importance of giving students and institutions clarity before the cycle begins. This is important in my mind, too, because what happens is FAFSA comes out October 1st. Students will start getting results as early as a couple days. Those results coming from the federal processor will automatically have on it whether or not the student selected for verification. So it does make a lot of sense. If we could tell students ahead of time that they're just not selected, <clears throat> excuse me, they're not selected, or that maybe they don't have to do anything, it could save work down the line because colleges may not start responding to students until later in the calendar year, you know, November, December, maybe even later even though we got their FAFSA results about what to do and if they need to turn anything else in. Why the big delay? Well, you know, it goes to the fact that we have to run our systems that we have for the current academic year, the current fall semester, which in a sense is tied to the next spring semester and summer. To start on to the process for students coming to us, not till the fall of 2022, it is a little early, and not always do we have all the system-related updates that we need from our vendors. You know, all the big systems out there that run our, what we call our student information systems, our SISs. We don't always have those updates right away. And it does take a little bit of time sometimes to get all those in. So students are in limbo a little bit, but it's not a, as big of a deal. Because, again, most of the time, Applications for universities don't start till October or November. Out here, you know, mostly it's uh, right around Thanksgiving when apps are due for our Cal State universities and for our UC schools. So private schools, same arena in timeline. So they may not be hearing about admissions until the spring, but we do want to get them their financial aid all kind of set up ahead of time. So I'm going to put a link here to the NASFA uh, article in our show notes. Now, I thought I'd throw in here something super, super nerdy. Uh, I guess because this was sent to me uh, by a couple colleagues who are much better at this. So uh, I'm not going to over uh, financial aid explain this, but there's a process called R2T4. Or what it stands for is return of Title IV funds. It used to be like return to Title IV funds. How that ever got messed up, I do not know. But so we always call it R and then the number two, T and the number four. So R2T4, R2T4 as a process is something we have to do. 
when a student drops out before the semester ends or the quarter or whatever uh, breakdown you have at your school. And so when that happens and they've received aid, they may owe some of the money back. And so, um, you know, it's easy enough if all you do is have semesters and your classes start at the start of the semester and they all end at the end of the semester. That's not too hard. Calculation's relatively easy. But the Department of Ed recently had redefined what we call modules. And this would be, say, a 16-week semester with a class that starts the first week and ends the eighth week, and uh, another class that starts the ninth week and ends the 16th week. So in a sense, you have first half, second half. Well, they consider that to be modules. And, of course, when uh, you have to look at these type of things, and, of course, the Department of Ed is very good at making things that are complicated more complicated, they have done just that. So out at the NASFA Ask Regs Knowledge Base, they have a thing called, um, they have one of their new items or entries here. It's already been viewed 1,700 times. And here's the title of it, because this is like a question somebody posed, and then NASFA researched it, maybe contact the Department of Ed, and offers up as um, concise of an answer as they can. So the question that they posed out here was, how do we determine the number of countable days for the 49% R2T4 exemption? And so this was an update to reflect clarifications that NASFA did get from the department after they published guidance on the program integrity rules on their website on August 20th of this year, um, you know, from final rules that were passed just a year ago. So there's a withdrawal exemption, basically. And the reason I, I'm going to give you the link because I want you to see all these charts because if it doesn't confuse you, I don't know what's wrong with me, but it's it talks a lot about countable days for a module. And what if you have breaks between modules? And what if a student passes one, fails another, and maybe there's a third module in there and doesn't even attend? How do you figure out, do they owe money back? Did you pay them for all three classes? That's oftentimes the biggest thing. Did you pay them for the classes that they were enrolled in at that time and when they started? So there are many, many charts and or little graphs here to help you figure this out. Because, again, nothing is ever simple. If a student takes four classes, they may have one that runs a whole semester, but they may have something in the first half and then the second half. And maybe your school does something that sits right in the middle and is uh, two-thirds the length of a semester. I want you to look at this, and I hope you're as confused as I am, except for our R2, T4 super geniuses out there. There are some out there. We have some in our district. I have some here on staff because uh, there's no way I could understand it. So you look at this. If you are an outsider, uh, you may just want to take away the charts to see why is financial aid so confusing to me? Yeah, it's confusing to us too. One more thing here from NASFA. Just something to share here, uh, some news. So a uh, recent announcement from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the, the federal government, um, <clears throat> may have some implications here for alternative methods to financing your education. So this was in a consent order posted last week, Tuesday. The CFPB, as the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is known, the CFPB detailed allegations against a Virginia-based Better Future Forward, which is a income share agreement 
provider that was alleged to have misled students about these income shared agreements. The company apparently misrepresented its product and failed to comply with federal consumer finance law, according to the CFPB. So this is apparently a first major federal action against a provider within this growing income share agreement world. And basically what it is, um, this industry, in a sense, is trying to offer financing mechanisms as something other than a loan, meaning that it wouldn't be regulated as private loans. So an income share agreement is kind of like, I'll give you money, not so much as a loan, but I will share in your income once you're out of school. Little, you know, like a, you know, like an early contract uh, type of thing. So apparently they may have run amok. I'll give you the link to the article because it is kind of an interesting field and it's something I've seen written about on a, a, from a variety of people, not always directly in higher ed, but adjacent about how this could maybe be a new future. After all, you want to make certain students can get money to go to school, but what if uh, student loans aren't always available for them because of their program of study? Maybe it would make more sense as a company. And again, maybe it could be a company that wants to hire people that offer you up the finance up front, and then as you earn money working for them or someone else, you pay some proportion of that back. So their success is, in a sense, couched in your success as a student. So it's an interesting article, and I think this is something that will probably be out there and now obviously more closely monitored by the federal government, but also something more students might hear about out in the field. Now, we go before we go on a couple more articles here, I think it's not a bad idea. Give you a little bit of music, and then we'll get rolling on. And like that, we are back for our second cup here on the What's Brewing Seas for Show. Time for a little bit of Philip. So an article that comes to us from the Antelope Valley Press, the Antelope Valley, if uh, you don't know how California is laid out. If you can get to California and you get on the five and you drive north, you go over a little bit of hills, you hit uh, a city called Santa Clarita. But then if you turn yourself a little northeastward, up to 14, as they say, you get to the Antelope Valley, Lancaster, Palmdale, etc. So this comes out of Lancaster. So the Antelope Valley College up there um, has dispersed two students where at least nine of them have, uh, again, their fall semester just started, where nine have been identified as potentially fraudulent. Um, so this is something coming from, again, that memo that came out of our state system office to the colleges regarding security measures, potential threats from bots. Because, um, you know, we're all on the lookout to try to avoid these non-student students trying to enroll in classes, which take seats away from other students, and obtain financial aid fraudulently. So 
This appears to be one of the five, you know, Antelope Valley was one of the five schools mentioned in the LA Times article as having a high number of applicants. So it does look like uh, Antelope Valley College officials concluded this latest variant of potential fraud was different from past scenarios. They shared information with peers and the state system office um, and became aware of this back in the summer session. So guess it's good to see some other local news here reporting on potential things. And again, how we want to interact with this and hopefully stop non-student students from getting money that again could be used for other students. You know, waste of government resources, committing crime, and again, taking seats away from other real students. It takes resources. I've already talked to an instructor on my campus who had potential short, quick interactions with some students who are probably not real students who are, again, taking up seats in her class. And I know her classes are very popular, whether in person or, in this case, being an online class. And that means some student couldn't get into her class. So if you're doing the crime, stop doing the crime. That's all I ask of you. I'll give you a link to this Antelope Valley Press article just so you know about it. I found something interesting at NASFA. Their little article uh, brings up a good thing here. You know, as they're preparing to do some system maintenance in early October, they're requiring all the my NASFA or NASFA website users for members update their passwords. And it brings up a good, uh, you know, guess a general point to everybody out there. Um, if you're like me, you have many passwords. And hopefully, you don't just have one password for everything. But it's not a bad idea that you regularly take some time to update your passwords. How often you do that is really up to you. But you want to do it regularly enough just so that you know that your stuff is secure. And the fact that you're not recycling one password among all your email accounts. That could really open you up to a lot of trouble. So try to avoid that. You know, make a regular case for it. The other thing I'm just going to throw out there is, and I'm not going to tell you what I use or what I recommend, but if you are not using a password program on your cell phone, which again, you could password protect or, you know, face ID, whatever you have on your phone, protect, or other biometric like fingerprint, etc., whatever your phone and carrier allows. If you're not using a password program, you really need to. You don't want to keep written lists of these things. You don't want a piece of paper hanging in your cell phone with your passwords. You don't want to have to be where it's, well, it's my Google account, my Gmail account, so it's got a, a three at the end of the password. And then my other email account has a four. And then my bank has a five, you know, some kind of sequence thing. Now, I will say, though, there, as far as creating the passwords themselves, I'm not going to give guidance on this because I've seen such a variety of guidance on this. And I would suggest, you know, read a couple good articles, either, you know, like a Mac World, Mac Life type of site, Wall Street Journal and their technology coverage, other, you know, tech-related sites. Because there are some interesting discussions as far as, you know, does the 
whole uppercase, lowercase numbers, characters really work as a process to creating emails or as someone else once suggested, uh, another guy from the tech world, you know, sentences of words that you would put together, but someone else might not, you know, I'm going off to Caribou County. If there is no Caribou County, for example, or something like, you know, I ate a horse yesterday with plantains, you know, something that's long and would be harder potentially for um, hackers to figure out. So I'm going to, again, leave that to you. But again, for our NASA members, it did bring to mind, not a bad time. Look at your passwords. A couple last articles here. An interesting one out at inter- Inside Higher Ed. Article title kind of tells me uh, things that I've already read about, and hopefully you have too, just so that you can understand what's going on in our field. Title of the article, Not All Americans Think College is Worth It. Might be a little scary for us here. So apparently, what uh, in the uh, reporting here and from a survey by American Association, uh, the Association of American Colleges and Universities and the Bipartisan Policy Center here. The big thing they found, political party, age, and income level play a role, play a role in whether Americans believe a bachelor's degree is worth the time and money. And so this was a survey of 2,200 American adults. And as, uh, you know, some things are fairly predictable in this. Wealthy and college-educated Americans are more likely to say a college degree is definitely or probably worth it. About three-quarters of such adults endorse the value of a college degree. By comparison, only half of adults with a, out, uh, without a college degree or who, or who earn less than 50000 a year would say the same. A bit of a split between, you know, Republicans and Democrats. Seven in ten Democrats say definitely or probably worth it, compared to 53% of Republicans and 52% of independents. You know, so some of this might be predictable, but it is stuff that's worth reading about and thinking about because I've read a number of books that try to break down the true value of a college degree, you know, whether it's worth it. And again, that's a broad question with a lot of answers because a degree, maybe not so much right this minute, but a matter of years ago in petroleum engineering which might come from a school that costs a significant amount of money, sometimes at private schools, still the payoff is great because you start at near six figures. Law degrees at some points in time were the same way. But then we had kind of a glut of law students and a glut of new lawyers. And how does that affect the field? But again, it's sometimes the field of what you're planning to study. Sometimes it's also the timing of things. Certainly there are computer and technology jobs that are absolutely worth the investment and there are maybe some that really aren't you know if they're if the degree or certificate you're getting doesn't offer you enough skills to jump into the market and have a way up the ladder get something to think about so i'm going to throw in that insider higher ed news article link in our show notes and then lastly here and this uh you know something just to remember as we just passed the 20th anniversary of the september 11th terrorist attacks back in 2001 
Another article at Inside Higher Ed called A College Wounded on 9-11, Memories Endure 20 Years Later. And so this is something, you know, just to think about. Down there in that lower part of Manhattan, there is a community college nearby. So the borough of Manhattan Community College, which occupies several uh, buildings in lower Manhattan, lost eight students and alumni in the Fallen Towers. The subsequent collapse of World Trade Center Building Number 7, uh, only hundreds of feet from the heart of the attacks, pummeled the college's Fitterman or Fitterman Hall with a mountain of debris, rendering it uninhabitable. The building housed classrooms, computer labs, and administrative offices, and would be later torn down and rebuilt, um, which unfortunately, as it says here in the article, earned the college, the terrible distinction as the only U.S. college to lose a building to terrorism. So something that you might have not have thought about, that we did have community colleges and community college people directly affected by the mere fact that they were going to community college at the time of the 9-11 attack. So I'll give you a link to that also uh, as we're getting through here, the 20th anniversary of the attack. That's really about all I have for news today. So let's throw a little music on. We'll move our way into our last part of the show. And just like that, guess what? We're back for our last sip segment. And as I said earlier, I think I'm going to uh, call out one of the things that I put out there earlier as my I dare you to. That article and reminder from NASVA to update your passwords. If it's been a while, it's been a number of years. It's an account you don't even know if it still exists or if you've ever received a warning or email regarding them. Or something that you threw away and it was like, why were they sending me something about my American Express? I closed that account a long time ago. But maybe you were using an email, or I'm sorry, an email account and or password for that account as you were somewhere else because you were sharing uh, passwords among your many accounts. Now is the time to change it. You know, something to also consider, there's a number of those, you know, I'm not, I can't even, I won't even say all the possible names of companies out there that protect your information or scan the web for your information, but some of those are probably worth it, especially if they have regular updates on dark web activity and such, where your known email addresses or social security number, or other information like that is showing up. It might tell you that, you know, you might have gotten hacked, or I should say organizations that you work with have gotten hacked. And we know between banking institutions, email services, sellers, and their websites. You hear about this all the time throughout the year, the possible hacking and uh, taking of data. Easiest way to stay ahead of that, continually be monitoring your information or have someone be doing it for you at a reasonable price. But everyone, I'm going to leave that with my uh, dare you to. I'm going to slide into some music here because that's all we have for today's show. I want to, of course, 
Thank you, our audience, for tuning in. And again, if you ever have questions or you want to hear a topic here, email us in at wbcsa at gmail.com. And remember, you can find this and all What's Brewing CISFA podcasts on Google Podcasts, your Apple Podcasts app, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and the TuneIn app on your Amazon Echo by using Alexa. What's Brewing CISFA is a production of Studio 1051, a creative collaboration of me and Dana. This has been episode number 123, recorded Tuesday, September 14th, 2021. Everybody, have a great day and have a great week.